Or good God's house. What a good and wonderful day it is to be in God's house. As our brother John has reminded us, we've worshipped our good and great God. Let me invite, your, invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. Happy Palm Sunday, by the way, as we are reminded that our Lord entered triumphantly into Jerusalem to be that great sacrifice for us. And I do indeed appreciate Cody's words this, this morning. I look forward to celebrating and remembering the crucifixion with you this Friday night. And I just want to echo what Cody said. Um, I trust you will be better prepared to celebrate the resurrection of Christ if you first mourn his death. And we will, we will mourn the death of Christ for us this Friday, remembering his great work on our behalf for our atonement. He continues to do, uh, by the way, a great work in our church. Um, I'm, I'm richly blessed by all that God is doing and that I hear testified to me. One thing in particular I would like to share with you before we get into God's word is, is you know as a church, we, do, we have a practice of not saving uh, any excess money that we receive. We keep two months uh, budget expenses aside just, just in case, but anything over that, uh, we, uh, set that, we give that money back to God in the form of supporting our missions partners. And since we've been doing that for now, uh, I believe eight years now, we have had a budget surplus every single year um, as a church once we decided to stop saving our money. Uh, last year, uh, this little church had a budget surplus of $215,000. Yeah, praise God. Not, not a penny of that stayed here. Um, every, every penny of that has now been divided to our local, national, and international missions partners. And I just want you to understand that because of your generous giving, your faithful stewardship, the gospel continues to abound. And people are being able to be sent. And people are, are serving in places like Guatemala and Ghana and in Kurdistan and here in Northern Virginia and South Dakota because of your faithfulness. And so I'm so thankful to be part of a church that has such a heart for the nations. May we continue to be so. And so here we are now in Colossians chapter 2. I look forward to being able to consider God's word with you this morning. Uh, just a couple verses. We'll begin in verse 16. Hear now the word of God. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that we do not live in the time of shadows. But we live in the time of fulfillment. That Christ has come. Christ has died, and Christ has been raised, and Christ has ascended, and Christ is reigning at your right hand even now. What, what an honor it is to belong to Christ, to know Christ and to be known by Christ, to be in love with Christ and to be loved by Christ. So we thank you for that great privilege. And even as we consider today how it is we live out this relationship with Jesus, we pray for your help. Help us to understand these few words in front of us, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The year 1834 uh, saw the birth of an individual who would one day become uh, the most famous Christian smoker in the world. Refer to the Baptist preacher Charles Hayden Spurgeon, born in England in 1834, as one of 17 children. Started preaching at age 16. Despite his lack of education, he became the pastor of a church the following year, age 17, known as the boy, he earned the nickname quickly as the boy preacher. Though Spurgeon never attended seminary, his private library contained 12,000 books, in which he claimed to read six books every week. By the age 20, he became the pastor of the New Park Street Chapel. Attendance on their morning worship service quickly grew to 10,000. Those who attended included Florence Nightingale, the Prime Minister of England, and many members of the royal family, who, by the way, were happened, of course, by tradition to be Anglican, and here they are in a Baptist church. Spurgeon's sermons were published on Mondays in the London Times, and believe it or not, in the New York Times. Can you imagine the New York Times publishing a Baptist preacher's sermon every Monday? Uh, before they were published in these uh, uh, um, newspapers, before they were translated into 20 different languages, we know one woman in particular came to faith in Christ reading one of Spurgeon's sermons that was wrapped around some butter she had just purchased. He not only uh, preached, he wrote books, he ran an orphanage, he oversaw a Bible college, and he answered by hand 500 letters every week. By the age 50, Spurgeon had founded and managed 66 different organizations, including pastoring his church. By the time he died, he had published 63 volumes of sermons, making Charles Spurgeon the most published Christian author in history, and some, uh, some have concluded the most published author of any kind in human history. All right, so you're feeling good about yourself, right? Well, what, so what is the secret of Spurgeon's success? Well, according to his doctor, it was his fondness for cigars. On his carriage ride to church, he would enjoy a morning cigar as a way of preparing his throat for preaching. This was a recommendation of his physician. And yet his smoking caused a bit of a stir on September 23, 1874, when visiting his church was a famous American pastor by the name of Dr. George F. Pentecost. After Spurgeon's sermon, Pastor Pentecost, which I think is an extraordinary name, by the way, um, asked if he might address the congregation. Spurgeon agreed. Pastor Pentecost climbed into Spurgeon's pulpit and began to rail against the sin of smoking, totally unaware of Spurgeon's love of tobacco. The Daily Telegraph reports reported, last Sunday evening at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the deservedly popular, unquestionably benevolent, eminently shrewd Mr. Spurgeon was preaching a sermon on the sinfulness of little sins. At the close of his useful sermon, the minister introduced an American clergyman who, he said, was anxious to address the congregation. The reverend gentleman inveighed fiercely against the sin of smoking tobacco, especially in the form of cigars, and told his hearers how at last, by divine blessing and with the assistance of providence, he had himself conquered his addiction to the weed, end quote. Well, if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, he's the type of guy that can't let certain things lie. And so after Patrick Pentecost had railed against the sin of smoking, uh, Charles Spurgeon rose, 
climbed back into his pulpit, addressed his congregation once more and said, well, dear friends, notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, before I go to bed tonight, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God. If anyone can show me in the Bible the command, thou shalt not smoke, I am ready to keep it, but I have not found it yet. I find ten commandments, and it's as much as I can do to keep them. I have no desire to make them into eleven or twelve. Therefore, I mean to smoke to the glory of God. Now, we, we need to speculate just a little bit. If Spur, this was the 1870s, um, if perhaps Spurgeon knew a little bit more about tobacco, some of the information we knew, perhaps he would, wouldn't be so emphatic. But I think why this story is helpful, if not just simply amusing, is about a week later or so, Spurgeon was in, this caused quite a stir, um, and it was picked up all, all, all by the local newspapers. He was interviewed on this subject, and this is what Spurgeon said, and I think it's helpful for us to introduce this text before us. He says, there is growing up, in a, a growing up in society a Pharisaic system promoting, this is what he said, the precepts of men. To that system I will not yield an hour. The preservation of my liberty may bring upon me the upbraidings of many good men and the sneers of the self-righteous. But I shall endure both with serenity as long as I feel clear in my conscience before God. Now I think this is similar to what Paul is addressing here. As you note verse 21 of Colossians chapter 2. When Paul says, quoting those in Colossae who, who are... Uh, forcing this legalistic system upon these people. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all are perishing as they are used. Notice what Paul says here, according to human precepts and teaching. So Paul is warning the Colossians here in the end of chapter 2 of, of using human, human precepts, or what Spurgeon might call the precepts of men, to distort the Christian faith. Now, we know that Colossians 2, we've heard this over and again, haven't we, that Paul's been warning them of these false teachers. We've seen a number of warnings. Let me just remind you of one in verse 8, so we get the context. See to that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. There are those here who are trying to capture them with their own eye, false ideas. And Paul defends them by telling them of the fullness that they have in Christ, verses 9 through 10. And then unfolding in glorious details, we've seen the last two weeks, of what Christ has done in us and what Christ has done for us in verses 11 through 15. And let me remind you what Paul said in here in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. And so we, we, we rejoiced last week, did we not, that the debt has been canceled. Now maybe, maybe you're here this morning, you can relate to that. You say, wait a second, debt. Um, what does he mean debt? Well, this is not a reference to your credit card debt. It's not a reference to your mortgage payment. This is a debt that we owe to God, every single one of us, because of our sin. A debt which cannot repay, be, be repaid through the monthly installments. This is a debt that Christ has paid for us. A debt we owed, a debt Christ paid through the cross. We see he nailed it to the cross. Nailed your debt to the cross. In other words, Jesus, in, in offering his sinless life, he did so as a payment for our sins. 
And if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you happen to be watching on our live stream and you're not a Christian, this is the very heart of the Christian faith. That Christ the Savior died to pay for our sins. This is the very heart of what John was helping us understand this morning. The new covenant. My debt, Christ's payment. My sin, Christ's life. And you may be here and you may be occupied with some pressing need in your life. It may be consumer debt. That may be the need that you have. It may be your health. It may be your job. It may be your family. It may be I need meaning in my life. And you say, Pastor, why won't you help me on some of these things? And, and I, 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 all those things are worthy of, of finding help. I think Scripture has a great help in those areas. There can be no doubt. But I do remind you of what our Lord said. Jesus Christ declared, what is it profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? What does it profit you if you do get out of debt and get the perfect family and the perfect job and have the perfect health and yet you give up your soul for it? I offer you today forgiveness of sin. I offer you today your debt to God being paid off if you would trust in Christ. If you would yield your life to Jesus in faith. Those of us who have, we have gained much in Christ. And if we have gained much in Christ, we should beware of those who attempt to capture and take us away from Christ. Beware of those who would distract us from Jesus. You know how Paul starts verse 16 when he says, therefore, right? So he's connecting what he's about to say with what he just said. There, your debt's been paid, therefore, beware of these three distortions of Christianity all uh, unfolded before us here in Colossians 2. Legalism, the first, mysticism, the second, asceticism, the third. You perhaps will be relieved to hear we will only consider the first today. The, the reality of legalism. For he says here in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see there's quite, quite a few rules going on in the church at Colossae. Quite a few rules that individuals are enforcing upon these Colossian Christians as we see first of all the reality of legalism. That's taking place. There's legalism that's taking place here. Legalism has always besieged the Christian church. Legalism, we use that term. It's not found in the Bible, but I think it is a helpful term. It's simply legalism, we might define it this way. It's when you have a list of preferences or behaviors or personal rules that aren't recorded in the Bible, and yet you deem that everyone must obey your list. In fact, you treat your list like God's list. So I want to be very clear. Legalism is not obeying God. Okay, that's not legalism. Keeping God's commandments is not legalism. Jesus obeyed God. Jesus makes demands on our lives. Just because we are under grace does not mean we are free to disobey God. Again, I return to John, who was so helpful for me this morning. We still have the moral law, and we are at the same time under grace. So we, you know, for instance, if the, the fifth commandment says we are to honor our, our parents, if, if my one of my children decided to dishonor their mother, and I, I called them to account. No, you need to, if God commands you to honor your mother, my child cannot come to me and say, Dad, listen, I'm under grace. I'm not doing it. Okay? That's not, that's not legalism. You can't look at me and say, Dad, you're a legalist. No. Legalism is not obeying God. That is not legalism. Nor 
is legalism making extra biblical rules. You can make as many extra biblical rules as you want. That's not legalism. You might read your Bible in the morning. Say, I read my Bible every morning. You might read your Bible at night. I read my Bible every night. Okay? That's fine. Good for you. You can make those rules. My family, we don't watch TV on Saturday nights. We watch TV Friday nights and Tuesday nights or any other night of the week. We don't watch it on Saturday nights. We find that helpful to prepare our own hearts to worship with God's people on Sunday morning. That's kind of a rule in our home. It's a family rule. You can have, that's not legalism. Legalism is when we take these rules, these traditions, and these preferences, and we raise them up to the level of biblical command, and we begin to evaluate not only ourselves, but other people by them. See, the Bible has commands. And the Bible's commands are good for us. God gives us these commands because he loves us. He wants to protect us. He, God knows how life works. He says, okay, this is what we're going to do. So when God says you shall not murder, that's a good command. You understand that? You should not commit adultery. That's a good command. How many uh, uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of children have God spared uh, the welfare of those children when their parents actually obey God and not commit adultery and on and on. God's commands are not, listen, especially if you're a teenager here this morning, please understand this. God's commands are not to rob you of your joy. They're to save you from harm. Save you from suffering and trouble. And so often the world says, hey, don't you want this? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this fun? Isn't this exciting? And God says, no, you shouldn't do that. You think, is God robbing me from my joy? No, God is just far wiser than you and knows that this thing over here will do you harm. It will bring misery. It doesn't give you what it promises us. And sometimes I like to use the illustration. I hope it's helpful for you. It has been for me. Uh, uh, at our previous church, we lived in a, a parsonage uh, right next to the church. It was a nice old house. And yet the problem with it, it was on a busy street. There was a busy street running right in front of the house. The backyard was the parking lot. And, uh, and, and we, we had little kids, and, and the kids liked to play outside. And to be perfectly honest, we liked to send them outside. Um, and, and so, but it wasn't safe. So let's just say we decide to build a fence around the yard there that we had. And we put in the fence and we look to our kids and say, hey kids, listen, you have this whole yard, it's yours. Have fun, climb a tree, build a fort, you do whatever you want. Have a great, great time in the yard. Just don't climb the fence. Because on the other side of the fence is danger. And, and, and I, know, I know it looks restrictive. I know, I know it looks alluring what's over there. But we love you. And the fence is actually life-giving to you. And I think this is in many ways what God does when he gives us his law. It's a fence to keep God's kids from running out in the street and getting hit by Satan and sin. And God says, hey kids, I made this whole yard for you, right? Have a great time. Enjoy your freedom. Just don't climb the fence because I don't want you to get hurt. That's what God's law is like. Well, the religious people come along and they think, well, we got a great idea. You know, the fence is good, but what if we built another fence inside that fence and we could build it a little bit higher and they build that fence and they say well you know two fences you know would be better than two fences three fences and we could put some razor wire on the top of that third fence to really keep everybody safe and we could build a tower and we could put mom up into the top of the tower and she could have a tranquilizer gun right and 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 this would be great everybody's gonna be nice and safe and what we once had was this beautiful yard in which we could play and run and have all sorts of fun and now what do we have we have a prison by our own rules, right? We've created, this is what legalism does. It creates prisons for us. 
and, and we're no longer free to enjoy. We're actually imprisoned by the rules in which we have made. This is why I think many, many kids uh, who, who grow up and leave the church, they want to run from the church. As soon as they get that freedom, they're out of there because all they do is identify Christianity as the rules, as some type of evil restrictions. Please understand that if you think Christianity makes no demands on your life, that's not Christianity. There are rules. But if you think Christianity is primarily about keeping rules, that's not Christianity either. Jesus Christ did not come primarily to give you rules. He came primarily to fulfill the rules in which you have failed to keep. He came primarily to give you himself. And so, yet sadly, we... we we find it very easy to make these rules. And it seeps into our heart and it seeps into the church and it's seeping into the Colossian church. In particular, what you see is two types of rules that they're enforcing. And, uh, rules about diet and rules about days. You see there in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food and drink. This undoubtedly is a reference, though it's not explicitly made, a reference to the kosher laws of the Old Testament. God, God restricted the diet of his people in Israel, um, and these food laws were to help separate them from the nations. There's a special diet as a way to consecrate themselves from belonging to God. And, and along the way, we know that special diet became a source of holiness for them. Like, we eat this type of food, we don't eat that kind of food, therefore we're godly. Right? It no longer was a matter of the heart. Okay? It was just this external obedience. And it seems like they're enforcing this upon the Colossian church. You, you might find it interesting, there, there are no restrictions in the Old Testament about drink, except for one. It's a very rare condition where you would make a vow of a Nazarite. A, a very, I, I know of only two places in the Bible, maybe there's a third, when someone makes this vow. And, and you, one, of that, one of the vows of devotion you make, you would abstain from alcohol, but it's very rare. But it seems perhaps that they're saying to these Colossians that, that they have this super spiritual program. You want to be a really good Christian, well, you have to keep away from these things and avoid these types of food and these type of drinks. You also see that they're enforcing these special days, aren't they? You notice he lists three kinds of days. He says a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There were three festivals in the, or feasts that the Jews uh, would keep, Israel would keep. Deuteronomy 16 says three times. All your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes called Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, sometimes called Pentecost, or at the Feast of Booths, which is also sometimes called Tabernacle. So God said three times a year, feast, have a festival to remember my goodness for you. We also see a reference to new moons. They were, of course, on a lunar calendar, so a new moon would start a new month. And we know in Numbers 28, they would bring a special offering to the Lord whenever the, the moon was new. And then you see, lastly, the Sabbath, which was God's, uh, God's people on every seventh day, as you know, would stop from working. It was a day in which they ceased from their regular activities. And so they, they had all these days in the Old Covenant, and it seems like they're beginning to enforce these upon uh, the people in Colossians. Uh, you need to keep these things. And then to make matters worse, they begin to judge them on whether they're keeping these rules, right? which is exactly what they're doing. He says there in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Don't be judged by these individuals according to their rules, which brings us secondly to the evil of legalism. The evil of legalism. Legalism always leads to judging. It always leads to some type of critical spirit. 
Now, we don't, don't, we're not sure what kind of judgment's going on. Are they, are they saying, if you don't keep our rules, you're a bad Christian? Or are they saying, you're not even a Christian? I do think it's a short step from go, saying, hey, let's agree to disagree on this one, to asserting that those with a different view from you, well, they can't even be a Christian. I mean, how many people have taken that step? Perhaps something like that is going on here. Regardless, what we know is that they're judgmental, they're critical, condemning people. Legalists are not, don't go around looking for things to praise. They don't go around looking for things to affirm. They're always searching for things to criticize. They, they come to a worship service, for instance, and they're looking for something wrong with it, right? The song, I don't like that song, the instrument's too loud, that illustration is weird, right? Is my pastor talking about a Christian smoker? What, what's, what's, what's going on in this place? Okay, what's happening, right? And they, they're looking for try, the, the, the fault. This is what legalists do. There's no love or care. There's no mercy or passion in their hearts. Just rules. Eat this. Don't eat that. Do this. We read this, right? And, and rule after rule after rule. And I'm telling you, not only is evil, you need to watch out, Christian, lest you become one. Because you are tempted towards this. At least you are susceptible to it. In every one of your hearts, there is a little legalist trying to take control. And I think the longer you follow Jesus, the more susceptible you are to legalism. The closer you are to Jesus, the more susceptible you are to the pride of looking down on others who aren't as close. Right? You go prideful in how you express your faith to Jesus. Maybe you're politically active and you look down upon those who are politically ignorant in your mind. Maybe you're quiet and you look down upon those who are boisterous and loud. Maybe you're a hard worker and you look down upon those who don't put in the hours. Maybe you train your children a certain way and you look down upon those who have children who have different behavior. Do you have a tendency to look at what's wrong with others, at least in your own eyes, instead of looking for what is good, what is praiseworthy? Do you look at others and you find yourself growing in pride because you think you're some way better because you keep these rules. I struggle with this, to be honest. This is, a, this is an area that I battle with. In fact, it, it'd be, uh, you, you, you're probably surprised to hear that I have strong theological convictions, okay? okay. And, and, and I, I, have, I have convictions, to be perfectly honest, on what church is supposed to be like and what a sermon is supposed to be like and so forth. And, and I hold those convictions very strongly. I was very much helped an, uh, a few weeks ago in our, we have a, a local, uh, we call it our Pillar Association. It's a, it's a group of local uh, Southern Baptist churches. We meet here for lunch every month. And uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we simply, just for two hours, each pastor shared their salvation testimony. And it, it was very powerful and very moving and very emotional. And I was struck by the fact that, that all of our churches are very similar. This is why we gather together, because we speak the same language and have the same goals as far as ministry. But every single one of us was brought to faith in Christ through a ministry that is far different than the ministry we now run. I found that stunning. Like none of us were saved out of a church that looks like one of our churches. And it was very, very helpful for me that, that, that we should not simply dismiss other Christians because they happen to practice their Christianity in a different way. I, I recently read an author who said, some claim the high ground of ex exceptional piety or exemplary orthodoxy from which to lob a barrage of criticisms against others who also claim the name Christian. The problem is that we can worship our theological constructions more than we worship Christ. 
the process inevitably results in an ugly, smug arrogance that exasperates divisions between us. So I think I, in particular, need to be aware of this. You need to be aware of this. I I would say, once again, there is nothing wrong with having preferences. There is nothing wrong with having theological convictions or philosophy of ministry. It is not wrong to be passionate about these views. It's not wrong to share them. And, 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 and you have your own views, and you have things that you find helpful. Like, you may decide you're going to fast on Mondays, and you find that draws you close to Jesus. Good for you. You have that freedom. Like I said, you read your Bible before bed, and that just puts you in a wonderful frame of mind to fall asleep with God's word on your heart. And that's just an, that is wonderful. I'm so happy you have a conviction like that. By all means, share that with others in order to help them. But do not bind that on them. Do not bind your rules on others. Do not judge them if they choose to do otherwise. We have opinions in hundreds of areas that we can have, but we don't place it upon others. You have your opinion on how you're supposed to dress or your political positions you're supposed to have or the length of a man's facial hair. I mean, we all have these different convictions, right? We don't bind them enough. You want to drive this kind of car. Look, if you're a man, you want to drive a minivan, go for it. All good for you, right? Don't bind what you think upon other people. Right? You have your convictions. Live according to them by your conscience. Allow others to do the same. Paul argues, in particular in the context of food. This is not the only fight over food the Christian church had in the early days. We read about this in Corinthians and also in the book of Romans. Paul writes in Romans 14 and verse 2, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. There are two rival factions in the church in Rome. you got the herbivores and the omnivores. you got the Californians and the southerners, right? And each group is disdaining the other. There's this debate that's going on. We, We know that if you bought meat in a market, which is where you went to get your meat, it most likely was previously sacrificed to an idol. There was, at the very least, no way to guarantee it wasn't. And so there were some Christians just saying, we can't eat that meat. We can't eat any meat. Because it might have been sacrificed to an idol. Other Christians said, what's an idol? It's just a dumb statue. We can eat it all we want. Right? And so they're fighting there. And Paul enters this debate in Romans 14, verse 3, and this is the conclusion. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. In other words, get over it. And stop being so legalistic. He would say in verse 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. Live at peace with one another. Seek righteousness. Stop judging. Right? These, this rule keeping is, is, not only, is not only not propelling you to righteousness, it's actually leading you into sin as you judge your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which leads us lastly to the futility of legalism. The futility of legalism. Now you read verse 16, you say, wait a second, pastor. Food laws, festivals, Sabbaths, isn't this in the Bible? You're talking about extra biblical preferences. These are actually biblical commands. Well, certainly they are, but they belong to the old covenant. They're part of the scaffolding that has been taken down to reveal the new covenant. They were there to prepare us for the new covenant. We know this according to verse 17. These, these things, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all the food laws and the rituals, they were established to point us to Jesus, to prepare us for Jesus. And all these laws and all these rituals, they have reached their sell-by date, if you will. Jesus himself in Mark 7 declared all food to be clean. And so belonging to God is no longer marked by observing these type 
of things. It's marked by embracing Christ. Therefore, we don't relate to God through food laws. We don't relate to God through keeping these Old Testament festivals. And, and furthermore, right, we, that to do so would be like embracing the shadow and ignoring the reality. You, you don't have a conversation with your friend and ignore him and just talk to the shadow on the ground. It would make no sense. He says these things are shadows, not the substance. So the food laws were designed to distinguish God's people as holy, but now we are distinguished as holy by belonging to Christ, not by the food we eat or don't eat. The Passover, of course, was, was not simply just to remember their past redemption from their slavery in Egypt well, it was to prepare them for how the Messiah would redeem them, that God's wrath one day would once again pass over them as they hid under the blood of a Passover lamb. And to make that connection obvious, we see Jesus is crucified on Passover, and even more so that the, the, whole, the, the whole area grows dark immediately before his sacrifice, just like we read in the book of Exodus uh, uh, in that Passover. And Paul will make it explicit in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We think about the festival of booths or tabernacles. Not just a reminder, though it was, on how God provided for them as he brought them into the promised land. It was to prepare them for Christ to come who will bring us into the ultimate promised land, namely heaven. For we read in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The Sabbath was not simply a day to rest from their labor and to remember the creation order. It was a pointer to the true rest that is found when we cease from our self-effort and rest in the work of Christ. Jesus is our Sabbath. And so all these celebrations and festivals and Sabbaths, they, they've all been fulfilled in Christ. They're all shadows, but Christ is the substance. And I think to understand the Old Testament this way is not to degrade it, but it's actually to glorify it. I mean, what greater honor can be given to it, to this ancient faith, than saying it's preparing us for the Messiah? And so we as a church, we honor the Old Testament, we teach the Old Testament, we find delight in the Old Testament, but we see it through the lens of Jesus. And I think that, uh, once again, I, I remind you, as I do every six months or so, that the interpretive lens of Scripture is Jesus. It was J.C. Ryle who said, we should always read the Old Testament with a desire to find something in it about Jesus Christ. We study the Bible a little prophet if we can see in it nothing but Moses and David and Samuel and the prophets. Let us search the books of the Old Testament more closely. It was said by him whose words can never pass away, these are the Scripture that testify about me. So the Old Testament is filled with types or shadows of Christ. You think about the offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. These all point us to Jesus. You think about the things in the Old Testament. The sacrifices, the temple, manna, the ark, the scapegoat, the tree of life, the mercy seat, Jacob's ladder, the rock struck that gives life-giving water. These all are pointers to Christ. You think about the people of the Old Testament. You think about Adam who failed his temptation and imputed sin, it just points us to a better Adam who will succeed in temptation and impute righteousness. You think about Abel, whose blood was innocently shed and cried out for vengeance, prepares us for the better Abel, whose blood will be innocently shed and yet cry out for mercy. You think about uh, 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 Abraham, who obeyed God to go to a foreign land in order to bless the nations. It's just a picture of Christ. You think about 
how Isaac, who, who the son of promise, carries his wood up to his sacrifice, or Joseph, who is in obscurity and yet rises to the point where he saves God's people. All that's just Genesis. Think about Joshua leading the people into the promised land through the river, which represents death, or Samson sacrificing himself to defeat his enemies and to liberate God's people, or Jonah, who was entombed for three days and only to emerge in order to proclaim God's mercy to a pagan nation. All of these things are preparing us for the Messiah to come. God is weaving pictures of Jesus' saving work throughout the Old Covenant. And so one wrote, on every page his coming is prophesied, his life is prefigured, his sufferings are personified, his resurrection is promised, or his returning glory is pledged. And I think this is so incredibly important. I think Colossians 2 verse 17 is such a helpful verse in understanding how to read the Bible. Because many come to the Bible and they read it for tips on life, okay? They come to the Bible and say, what am I supposed to do? Right? How am I supposed to treat my wife? How do I overcome temptation? How do I grow in patience? Of course, the Bible helps us in all those areas. But I tell you, the Bible is not primarily about what you should do. That is not why it's primarily written. The Bible is primarily not about you, but it is about Jesus. And so you come to the Bible not thinking first, what should I do? You come to the Bible looking for what he did, or what he is doing, or what he will do, or who he is. You come to the Bible wanting to know more about Jesus. And what happens is when you discover what Jesus has done and who he is, you will find yourself uh, increasingly empowered to actually do what he calls you to do. Right? You think about, what does my hero do? Who, what is my, my beloved? What has he done for me? And as you rejoice in what Jesus has done for, for you, you want to be, you'll become changed like that. If you first fall in love with your father, and then you go out into the yard and see the fence, you, you want to stay on the other side of the fence because you already love your father. Right? You see, we come to the Bible to learn about Christ, and it's out of that love for Christ that we want to go on and obey him. This is called gospel-centered living. If all you simply see are demands, if all you simply see is a fence, and you have not first delighted in the one who has given them to you, it will be a burden. But when you see what he's done, you see how much he loves you, you will be happy to follow him in obedience. You see, the shadows are wonderful because we use them to point us to Jesus, not to live in them, and certainly not to judge others by them. Don't live in the shadows. They just show us the way to Christ. Only one thing matters, only one destiny matters, that we come to Jesus and that we know him and that we trust in him and that we help others to do the same, not becoming a barrier to them. Of course, we do continue to celebrate one of these festivals, don't we? There is one festival that Christians celebrate. It is the Passover. Of course, we celebrate it in a different way, and we call it by a different name. We call it, according to Scripture, the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion. We call it that way and practice it the way we do because Christ has shown us how the Passover pointed ultimately to him. You know, the Passover helps us remember Jesus. It's a memorial to Jesus, this Lord's Supper. It tells us about our past. But it also helps us anticipate the return of Jesus. It points to the future. And then thirdly, when we take it, as we will in just a moment, we commune with Jesus. It helps us in our present. And so I invite you, Christians, even as we conclude our time in God's word, to pray privately in your own heart, to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper.
Our Father in heaven, you have given us life, and indeed eternal life. You have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he is the eternal word of God made flesh for our salvation. We believe he died to pay for our sins and rose to conquer the grave. We commemorate these beliefs even as we prepare for this supper meal. And in doing so, we praise you and thank you for this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you. We bless you for him, our Father. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen.